In this episode, we interview Dr. Brunt James. Dr. James has been a senior fellow at the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. He is also a senior advisor at the Levitt Group and a senior advisor at Health Catalyst in Salt Lake City, Utah. He holds faculty appointments at Stanford University School of Medicine and at several other universities. He was formerly the Vice President and Chief Quality Officer at Intermountain Healthcare. He has been honored with various awards for quality in healthcare delivery, including the John M. Eisenberg Patient Safety and Quality Award, the Joint Commission and the National Quality Forum, the C. Jackson Grayson Medal for Distinguished Quality Pioneer, the Joint Commission's Ernest A. Codman Award, the National Committee for Quality Assurance Quality Award, and the American College of Medical Quality Founders Award. For eight out of the first nine years, Dr. James was among modern physicians' 50 most influential physician executives in healthcare. In modern healthcare, he was named among the 100 most powerful people in healthcare and the top 25 clinical informatists. In this episode, we discuss his leadership background value-based medicine, as well as his outlook on the future of medicine. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everybody and welcome to today's show of Leading the Rounds. So happy to welcome Dr. James to the show. Welcome to the show, Dr. James. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. How are you doing today? Uh, you know, I'm up at our family cabin just outside of Yellowstone on the North Fork of the Snake River. It's darn pretty out there, but medicine still is the top thing in my life. So I'm doing good. We're going to talk medicine. Awesome. Great to hear. I'm a little jealous that you're on, on vacation hiking right now as Peter and I are finishing up a, a unit in school right now. So we're doing a lot of studying ourselves. Well, you're young. You're tough. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You know, no screwing around and get to work. <laughs> That's Very what true. School means. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Very true. So we wanted to start out the interview today and talk a little bit about your background. I know you were a general surgeon to start your years practicing, and then you transitioned to a lot of more managerial roles. What spurred you along that transition, maybe out of practice into more managerial roles? The truth, Caleb, is it was a series of accidents. Uh, you know, I was on, initially in my undergraduate work, I was in a straight-through PhD program to become a, a physicist. I was working in a high-end computer lab, actually, um, working with a guy named Kevin Kay. His brother, Alan Kay, invented the microcomputer at Xerox Spark Lab. We were just having a blast. We were on the old original precursor to the Internet. The old ARPANET had eight computers on it. So I go way back that way. We were doing a language to do symbolic calculus for high energy physics calculations. It can still integrate better than I can. Can't differentiate better, but it could integrate better than I could. <laughs> and we were having just a blast. And one day in the, in the physics lab, we had a guy in his second postdoc. He came out of Columbia, top end school. He said, you won't be able to get a job in physics. He said, you think you're going to get a teaching appointment at some, some university? He says, a line for that is 200 people long. I checked, and he was right. I said, well, what should I do? And he said, medicine. He said, really good research questions. And he said, lots of money. Go medicine. So I applied to one medical school one time. 
I just said, what the heck? Took the MCAT, this cold one day, applied to one medical school one time, and I'll be darned, they accepted me. In my entry interview, I told them, uh, guys, uh, if I never see a patient, that's, I'm good with that. I'm trained to do research. I really enjoy research. I think I'm going to go be a medical researcher. And they let me in anyway. Uh, this was in the old days. It's a little different back then. I'll be darned. I got in medical school and I got exposed to a clinical environment. And it was intriguing. Um, it was deep. Uh, the interactions with the patients were wonderful. And the next thing you know, I find myself in a surgical residency. And so I got dragged out of my surgery into research at NCI. Uh, and holy cow, that, that was fun too. Now, I'm actually talking about a combination of three things. Number one, I have a really deep computer background. I'm a professor of medical informatics. Oh, for a number of years, I was rated as one of the top 25 informaticists in the country. I stood up the first network at Harvard, for example. I actually wrote an email system for Harvard that they used several years before commercial email became available, stuff like that. I wrote a system that for oh, 20 years they used to randomize patients in clinical trials and cancer clinical trials. But number one was that computer background. Number two was the medicine. Number three, I realized I couldn't understand cancer if I didn't understand statistics. So after my medical degree, after I was actually practicing a bit, I went back and picked up a master's degree in statistics. So NCI, I was at the College of Surgeons with the Commission on Cancer, having a blast there. I went off to do a year of fellowship at Harvard School of Public Health. It worked out. We were based at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I, I was theoretically a clinical appointment, but really it was 95% uh, research, big randomized controlled trials of cancer therapies. Um, but yeah, that was the third was the statistics. Eventually I became a professor in the Department of Biostatistics there. Little personal tragedy, I suddenly became a single parent and I moved back to Utah um, to get closer to family, to help with my three-year-old. It was just me and my three-year-old. Um, took the job at Intermountain, sight unseen, pretty much. You know, a funny thing, Caleb, is a long lead-in story. Um, I didn't know that administration existed. I really didn't. I was a classic um, research physician, academic physician with a heavy research focus. It wasn't until I was at Intermountain for three or four months that I figured out that I was the third physician in Intermountain's administrative ranks. I was part of administration, and holy cow, that was a cold shower. That was a that was a wake up call. The truth is, is I stumbled into it by accident, but I had the advantage. Um, some of the finest leaders, administrators in the world were part of that system, and they mentored me across the next 15, 20 years. Mentored me up in the skills of what it takes to do it. Now, I will admit, it's a funny thing. I was kind of the prototypical surgeon Oh, that patient down in 3C53, she has a name. Let me look it up on my little card. I believe that that human interactions, you know, how to say it? I had great hands. I have great 3D imaging in my head. And I was technically really good. Um, and I thought that's what it meant to be a good surgeon. Um, the human interaction stuff, uh, you know, 
I did my best work when the patient couldn't interrupt, thanks to anesthesiology, basically. <laughs> that's, that's what I was there to do. You know, kind of the prototypical surgeon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I came to understand is just how critically important that human interaction is. And it turns out I wasn't a total slouch at that either. Um, at least I had the smarts to recognize how important it was and then start to see how it worked underneath. And that's the key right there is the human interactions. So you know, I wanted to ask, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. There's yeah, a I famous old saying, it's worth noting, Peter, mm-hmm. the famous old saying, people get hired for their technical skills. They get fired for their people skills. I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind, especially as uh, you were talking a lot about how you were a researcher kind of at heart. And I feel like you're talking about me a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm, I, don't know, I have these, I have these, these split interests in uh, research and, and executive management, but I, I wanted to ask, um, I've heard you spent some time in England and Scotland, and I know that they have a very different healthcare system and a very different way of treating patients. And I'm wondering how that affected you when you came back to America. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, Peter. Um, I spend a lot of time, not just in England, Scotland, uh, an awful lot in Scandinavia, especially Sweden, Australia, some serious commitments. Uh, when, when COVID leaves, I'll be back as a senior advisor for Singapore, I think. Uh, they're going through a health reform effort, tons of time up in Canada. Uh, what I've come to believe strongly with data is that underneath it all, we're all pretty much the same. Uh, There are small differences from one system to another based upon how it's structured, government-run, single-payer. What you come to appreciate is it doesn't address the core issues we have as physicians. Uh, So one of the things I like to track is quality failures. Um, It all comes down to clinical variation. I like to divide it into five big subcategories. Given enough time, I dig through them. It's just a way of taking, you know, it's a huge literature. If you were to do a Medline search right now looking for articles documenting variation in clinical practice, uh, you'd roll out more than 50,000 articles in the peer-reviewed literature. Now, it's across 40, 50 years. It's extremely well documented. So number one, pure variation. The variation is so large, it's pretty much physically impossible that all patients are getting good care, even with full access to care. Number two, inappropriate care. Care is inappropriate if the risk inherent in a treatment outweighs any potential benefit. This in a profession that holds our primary maxim, first do no harm. This is where we actively put patients in harm's way. Inappropriate care is probably 20, 30% of all care delivered. Number three is patient safety, care associated injuries and death. Uh, It's probably impossible to get it to zero, although that is the right goal. But we, we have the science to drive it down by 70 or 80%. Uh, it's a form of variation. Number four from the list, um, we call them injuries of omission at the National Academy of Medicine, formerly the IOM. Uh, injuries of omission, that's where I have something I know works, proven data that it does work. Well, how well do we execute? For patients who need this intervention, how well do we do it? Beth McGlynn, she was at RAND at the time. She's now at Kaiser Permanente, probably the seminal studies published in New England Journal of Medicine. She showed that on average, we do it right for adults about 55% of the time, for children about 46% of the time. Now, it's pretty easy to show that we fairly routinely achieve miracles for the patients who seek our help. We do a world of good. If we can achieve miracles doing it correctly roughly half the time, what kind of miracles could we get if we did it correctly 
all the time. It means we're leaving an awful lot of lives and pain and suffering on the table. See the idea? Mm-hmm. Now, if you take those four areas of clinical opportunity, you can roll them together into waste. In quality theory, it becomes waste. This is where we come another big IOM committee in 2010. Our soundbite conclusion, probably more than 30%. Uh, how did we say it? Uh, a minimum of 30%, probably more than 50% of all spending in healthcare delivery is waste. Now, now to come back to your original point, Peter, I'd like to run that list of variation, inappropriate care, patient safety, failure to do things that work that we know work, right, and then waste. It's the same list in Sweden. It's the same list in Scotland. It's the same list in NHS England. It's the same list in Canada. It's the same list in Australia. And the numbers are roughly the same, small differences, but not big differences. And what it tracks down to is us. It tracks back mostly to the physicians, at the core of it, you see. Um, so what did I learn? I learned that as physicians, we can change the world. And it, it's, in, it's, in our, it's in our area. It's, it's our job. We need to do that. I, I think it's a demand of the of the healing professions, but especially the leaders of the healing professions, the physicians. Our job is to create a completely new profession and a new clinical world. And by the way, a much better profession. It's much more fun to work in this area. And you walk away at the end of the day. Uh, you know, I like to say we count our successes in lives, literally. And you walk away with a scorecard that says that you've made a real difference in life. You see, mm-hmm. but it's our job for that when you really dig into it tightly. And when you get across all the modern world, it's the same story. By the way, that's why I get invited to Sweden and invited to Scotland and invited to England, invited to Canada, to Australia, that same list. The reason is, is they suffer from exactly the same problem. So, so here's the takeaway from this. The solution to the problems we face in healthcare are not in Washington. I don't care who gets elected at this level because they can't control it. We can. That's our job. And that's where the change will happen. You see that idea? And by the way, let me just reach out and hand it to you. Here's the baton. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I want you to know that this is your job. Mm-hmm. I'm close to the end of my career. You're at the start of yours. I think that we've run the race and carried it fairly well. Your job is to cross the finish line. I just, I just want to say that was a very powerful statement from a very, uh, uh, I guess, not as powerful question, but that's a very important insight that, that the waste that we have here is not indifferent from other countries. No. And I think sometimes we're taught as medical students that uh, the American healthcare system is different. And yes, it is in ways, but we suffer from a lot of the same problems. If you want to dig into it, I'll tell you exactly how it's different, by the way. That's, there's good evidence behind that. <laughs> but maybe that's not the topic of our discussion today. Maybe that's maybe, for next time. Maybe not today. Yeah. So you mentioned a lot of the issues that we have, and it stems from the five different factors that you talked about. One thing that I've heard you talk about as a possible solution is value-based care. And is yeah. that model? Um, is that 
what you think is the solution to some of these problems? Is that where you think we should go, you know, as a system and as a healthcare industry? It's a key enabler, Caleb. So it turns out that, so this is classic. Ed Deming was the father of quality improvement theory. So I'm one of the last guys you'll meet still living who actually learned quality theory from Ed Deming. Um, the, the famous, you know, progenitor of quality theory, initially manufacturing. I believe we were the first group to show that his principles worked in clinical practice. Um, a discussion for another day. But he, he called it quality-associated waste. Turns out that when you set it up right, as you improve the quality of your care, it causes your cost to fall. Right? But there's a trick. Uh, you're going to generate these huge savings. Huge savings. I said minimum of 30%, probably over 50%. Serious money. I mean, nothing else comes even close to the money you can get out of this. Here's the trick. If you're paid fee for service and you as a doc do this, by the way, it always happens at the clinical level. That's where the change always has to happen. So you do it. You make the investment. You take your time. You, you buy new equipment. You hire people. You build new data systems. You, you, you sink your life savings into it. You generate, let's say, a 10 to 1 return on investment. For every dollar you spend, you generate $10 in savings. And then you wave goodbye to that money, and it all goes back to the payer, to the federal government or to an insurer as windfall savings, and you are thoroughly and totally screwed. And, and unless you, I guess you can beg on the street corner for food so you can continue to practice. You see what I mean? Yeah. Uh, well, fee for service is particularly obnoxious this way. Um, DRG payments, not quite as bad, but it still is going to carve out oh, easily 60% of your opportunities for better are not going to align. So, yeah, published that little article in all crazy places, Harvard Business Review in 2016, where we laid out this argument and the numbers behind it. So take a look at that if you're interested. Uh, but the, the fact is, is that, um, how to say it, better care that drives out waste, saves tons of money, makes care better and cheaper, is a paved road to financial catastrophe. Unless you line up the financials. And so the purpose is supporting, but the key is still docs doing better care, right? But you're just trying to align the incentives so that docs doing better care so you can pull it off. So. So I know one of the bigger problems, I guess not bigger problems, but one of the complaints that physicians have working in a fee-for-service model is that they're incentivized to see more patients and do more procedures, which might not always be in the patient's best interest. And um, I'm wondering, it's, I think we can talk a lot about the healthcare systems at a 10,000 foot view, but what kind of impact can a value-based care model have on the, the patient-doctor relationship and as well as managing patients at a, at a more intimate level? I'm gonna take that from a slightly different angle to come back to it, Peter. So one of those long explanations again, unfortunately. I, I don't think I'd expect anything less of you. <laughs> <laughs> at this point, yeah, I, I've already demonstrated how I behave. Um, so the way that it works, uh, we, we first understood the problem, and in general, it's, it's variation, but then I like to break it out into those five categories. And, and then we said, why? Why does it happen? So here's the short version without dragging you through all the evidence. It's three things. Number one is complexity. Mm -hmm. 
David Eddy at Stanford, tech, the technical father of evidence-based medicine, by the way, he's the guy who first used the term in the published literature. He developed almost all of our formal methods for doing evidence-based medicine. Eddy, the way Eddy said it, and he nailed it, he said the complexity of modern medicine exceeds the capacity of the unaided expert mind. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how well-trained you are. I don't care how dedicated you are, how hardworking, how well-rested you are. Sorry, guys. It's just too much. So the driver's complexity, mm-hmm. this is key to remember, all right? I, I'm, as a leader, I'm not going to get effective change by pressuring people, by giving them financial incentives somehow, or you know, beating them in more heavily. The problem's complexity. And if you don't get the diagnosis right, I guarantee you won't get the treatment right. Number two, we still rely in medicine on something called the craft of medicine. Now, it's an important idea. It, it led our profession a big step ahead. It, it was first formally implemented about 1900. It's the idea that I can load all the information into my head. Then from memory, when I see a patient, I can create a unique, customized, craft-based approach that guarantees that patient the best possible medical outcome because it's been customized by an expert to their particular circumstance. As you'll come to understand, every patient's a little different. No two patients are ever quite the same. And so there's a nugget of real truth in this, right? But I have this complexity problem, and I'm trying to rely on human memory as my primary deployment method. And uh, oil and water, I mean, they're both important, but they don't mix very well in today's environment. Number three, you've already hinted at lack of transparency. And by that, I mean um, the way that we've structured clinical data systems well, how to say it? Most patients get most of their medical information in an interaction with a clinician. Most of the time, a physician, sometimes a nurse, right? Um, or a pharmacist. But that's how most of the data transmission takes place. And by the way, it trumps everything else. Yeah, they'll go out and surf the net and get all sorts of things. They'll have to try to filter out the wheat from the chaff and awful lot of chaff on the net, as you understand. But they'll come back to a trusted advisor right? A wise counselor and the person of a physician. Oh, wait a minute. We're describing human relationships, aren't we? See the idea? We're back to that leadership question, believe it or not. Uh, And so what we came to understand is our current level of data systems. So you as a physician can connect the dots. No, I did this and I got that. You see, that takes measurement. So those three things, complexity, Reliance on human memory is a primary deployment method. And, and now it's still important. We don't want that dedication to go away. We just need to take a step forward, step beyond. And then finally, the last bit, this idea of transparency, better data to inform you as you practice down at an individual patient level as the interaction takes place. So those are the things right there that really make a difference, you see. So to do that, Frankly, it's very difficult to do it as a solo practitioner. You're pushing everything up to a profession level, right? So we as a team, uh, now I happen to believe that the physicians are probably the kind of the leaders of those teams. I can make an argument, but there are other critical team members who can't exist without nurses, pharmacists, therapists, technicians, right? What does that mean for you as a physician, Caleb? What does that mean for you as a physician, Peter? as you are leading a clinical team to be effective in this? 
oh, wait a minute, we're right back to the leadership issues, aren't we? Of understanding those people and how those people interact. See the idea? So they meld, they all come together. And, and they're essential cofactors working together. Um, and by the way, the same set of skills that will make you truly excellent with the patient will make you a better leader. There's a very high overlap between those skill sets, you see. Um, so, yeah, how do you interact with patients? Um, same set of skills that will make you an effective team leader. And once you become a leader of an effective front-end team down at the sharp end, you'll have pretty much the skills that you need to lead within the profession to lead administratively across the group. And it'll change your role. It'll, it'll change your role fairly profoundly. This, this begs the question, um, where did you or how did you learn how to lead? Uh, so I got it. Um, well, you know, the profession is getting better. The way that I learned to practice was see one, do one, teach one. All right. Um, you know, it's interesting. In my intern here, my surgical residency, this was in the old days, guys. I placed over 100 central lines. I loved it when I was assigned to a medical service because all the medicine guys were chickens. Uh, and as an intern, I was the guy who taught the fellows how to play central lines. These days, of course, they're not going to put patients at that kind of risk. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, in truth, again, good hands. I never had a complication that I know of. Uh, but that was dumb luck as much as anything. And these days, we're much smarter than that. <laughs> that would never happen. But it's the same thing that happened to me on the leadership side. Now, just as we've changed how we teach you how to place a central line, we're changing how we teach you how to be an effective leader. One of the most effective things I've seen lately, Steve Swenson, when he was head of leadership development for Mayo Clinic, uh, he made it a topic of careful study. And by careful study, I mean this was rigorous published articles on how a physician leader behaves, especially toward their colleagues within the profession. Again, high overlap with patient interactions. They wrote a book, uh, Tate Chanafelt, um, Steve Swenson, Oxford University Press. Um, it's the male model for physician burnout. But So what we're doing is we're starting to pull those principles forward and teach them. Holy cow, I wish I'd had that. I guess I really needed two things. I needed a and a friend, when I started, you know, I had the golden hands and I did my best work when the patients didn't interrupt and that, that's an attitude. And I learned that that was a, a very ineffective attitude. It was a bad idea. Um, and I learned it the hard way. Uh, and then I saw that there was a better way, a better path. And I, again, I had the blessing on the administrative side. Oh, yeah, some of the people I worked with were masters at this from the administrative side, and they mentored me, you know, a guy named Gary Pearson, um, oh, Dave Burton, oh, a really big one, Charles Sorensen, a surgeon who became CEO of Intermountain, Bill Nelson, who was our CFO, believe it or not, and became CEO as well, Scott Parker. These guys were masters at it, and uh, they, they mentored me along it was see one, do one, teach one sort of a thing. But you have a real advantage over me. We've developed it now into a bit of a science. Um, and that science is available to you. But here's the trouble. 
My guess is, is that it's not part of the university curriculum still to this level. I think that's why you're doing, while you're doing this activity, your, your, your blog, your video blog, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is to basically fill, fill that in. So it's too big a topic for me to handle right now. Steve Swenson, that book, Tate, by the way, Steve's retired. He loves to ski. He's living in Utah. I'm sure he'd be willing to help out. Uh, Tate's now uh, the, uh, uh, it's not chief quality officer, but it's rough equivalent. That's Karen Frush, that he's at Stanford. So, uh, and they're, they're the guys who wrote the book on this. And they're both, uh, you know, just excellent physicians as well. Uh, but go check that out because there's a system to it a teachable system and learn how to lead. Oh, by the way, just a funny little aside. Uh, it's got a long backstory. I'll, I'll skip that for now. It had to do with patient safety. We were looking at um, uh, procedural events, wrong surgery. Turns out that most of the procedures happen outside of the OR, by the way, and it has the same pattern. Uh, let's think. It's wrong patient, wrong procedure, wrong site, what we call wrong side surgery, right? Oh, the biggest is wrong anesthesia, interestingly enough, and then retain foreign objects. So we were working on this thing. Uh, it, it, we, we tried lots of different things. None of them really worked to change the failure rates. The only thing that worked, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, it was at University of Michigan where these guys ended up. Um, so. Michigan was a key player in this. Uh, it was leadership training. It turns out that you have to train the teams to function together effectively as teams. Jim Bajan did this initially at the VA with Ken Kaiser. But Jim was a real leader, and Jim Bajan's now at Michigan, just in passing. How do you lead an effective team? And if you can lead an effective sharp end team, that's the thing that dramatically dropped those failure rates. All right? Just as an idea. Uh, I think it's easily within your grasp there. Go and dig up Page and try to get some useful work out of him. All right? Mm-hmm. So something you've brought up a couple of times is these books and this knowledge that we have available to us. And Peter and I both love to read. So that's something that we'll definitely look into. Um, it reminds me of a, a great quote, or, and I, I don't know if I'll get it exactly correct, but it's said that like anybody can learn from their own mistakes, but I'm going to choose to learn from the mistakes of others. And it just like reminds me that like, you know, you mentioned that you had to learn the hard way. You had to learn by making mistakes, but because there's so much knowledge and there's so much information available to us that we're available, we're allowed to do this podcast and we're, we're, we can look at these, um, this data and this information before we get into practice and hopefully learn some of these lessons beforehand. So that's definitely something that, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to pursuing and looking forward to read on, reading on more. Absolutely spot on, Caleb. Let me just say, you guys will make mistakes too. Yeah. You'll make a new different kind of mistakes and they will be better mistakes than my generation made. Right. You'll fail towards success too. Mm-hmm. Um, but you will elevate the profession to a new level, a new level of service. We count our successes in lives. Right. And that's your task. That's your job. Yeah, you're going to see individual patients and help those people with their problems. 
that you have a, a job too, and we call it our profession. It's why medicine is probably the finest profession in, in the world, perhaps in the universe. We are privileged, we truly are, because we are members of this profession. I can't think of a better way to spend a life, I really can't. But you know, understand what the task is, understand what we're asked to do. Yeah, you'll make mistakes, but there'll be a far better set of mistakes than I made because you'll be functioning at a higher level. Well, find that higher level. Push that, that stone higher up the mountain, right? And hand a, a better set of problems to the generation that comes after you. And I feel like that's really our challenge too, is like you said, you, you and all of your colleagues have already built this foundation and made leadership already a science for us. So now it's up to us to take advantage of that, be those leaders and make these tangible changes on the system. And when you look back, treat us with charity. <laughs> I hope the next generation after you will look back and realize that we lived in a different world than they did. Mm -hmm. That we created a world for them that allowed them to function at a new level, right? So you got to remember to look back with charity. So um, the profession is an organism that lives across the eons. Mm -hmm. And with good leadership, it grows in each generation. So kind of a, a little bit of a, an off question. Um, what do you feel are some of the most pressing problems that we're, we're being faced with now in the U.S. healthcare system? Um, so where, where you stand depends on where you sit. So, you know, I'm deeply dedicated to a particular topic, so I'll probably be unfair to some others. Um, well, how to say it? You know, some years ago, I was working with the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, HRQ. They're part of HHS. They're the ones who look at care delivery uh, performance, basically, small agency. Uh, it's Carolyn Clancy, a physician who led that agency. We found a fun little article. What it said was, we could achieve as much good for humankind if we could simply deploy consistently what we know today would achieve as much good as the next 30 years of investment in NIH research. At the time, our investment was about $32 billion a year uh, in research. That's new biomedical research to extend the realm, you know, extend the boundaries of our science. Uh, wow, 30 years of that, if we could simply deploy, that's the leadership issue, you see. Um, and I believe that's our biggest task. It, it's innate, it's contained in that list of five elements of opportunity that I listed. You know, for things we know work, we execute correctly 50% of the time. That ought to be 100% or somewhere darn close to it. How do you make that happen? I believe that's our biggest opportunity and biggest challenge in this generation. And you're right, it is a leadership issue. You have to get the diagnosis right. Complexity, right? This reliance on human recall as a basis for execution, bad idea. Well, necessary idea just doesn't go far enough. And number three, better transparency, better data systems. Um, don't get me on my standard rant about the current crop of EMRs that we're going to subject you poor people to. Uh, but anyway, those three things, that's our biggest opportunity right now by far. I honestly believe we could cut the cost of healthcare in the United States by about 50% while significantly improving our clinical results. What would it mean if healthcare cost 50% less to the people of this country? Would it change their lives? It'd be huge. I mean, even beyond healthcare? 
You bet it would. Yeah. We're too big a burden, you see. Now, when I dig down through it all, so I've got two enablers. Um, one of them I've hinted at is EMR function, electronic health record function, the transparency piece. The other piece of it is it turns out that the science is pretty solid. The real thing that seems to block people from advancing is, is that if you do it, you're likely to get financially screwed. You see, I mean, you'll kill yourself. It's a poison pill. Yeah, it's great. You'll have wonderful ideals. You just won't be treating anybody because you're going to fail as a business and you won't, won't be able to keep a practice open. See the idea? What, what I know is if we can solve those, we'll, we'll take the floor and, and move this rapidly ahead. You see? Mm-hmm. So where I'm focusing my time, Peter, is, is number one, let's make the argument, let's change how the finances work a little bit. Just in passing, single pair doesn't solve it. We have the same problem in NHS England or in NHS Scotland or in Sweden, right? Same problem. Um, and then that second thing, let's fix the stupid EMRs for a long list of reasons, but let's make them work the way. And we have the science. We know how to do it. Uh, let's just go do it, you see. Now, frankly, if the medical profession were to come together around this, this set of topics, we have a strong enough voice that we could carry the day. As soon as I say come together, though, it's a leadership issue, isn't it? But I, I think it also is an opportunity, not just an oh, issue, an opportunity. Yes. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. I heard a quote once. I, I can't remember who I can't assign to anybody, but we've we've been able to make technology work, but we haven't really been able to make technology work for us. Uh, I feel like that's kind of one of the, one of the biggest issues that are yeah. we're kind of facing, in a, I guess, in this transition point. Um, but maybe, maybe someone like Eric Tobel could speak a little bit more about that for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm not alone in these viewpoints, just in passing. I recommended that you hunt up my old friends, Don Berwick and Maureen Bizignano, and oh, another really good one would be um, Gary Kaplan, who runs Virginia Mason in Seattle. They have this same vision. Um, well, a long list of others as well. I'm being unfair to a whole bunch of people. Steve Swenson, Tate Shanafelt for sure. Uh, um, uh, yeah, I better stop while I'm ahead <laughs> because the list is 100 people long. Um, what all of those people are, are people who have a vision for what it means to be a physician. A, a vision for what, when you pl- place that mantle on our shoulders for what it means. It's a calling to service. It's service not just of the heart, but of the mind. Uh, that we need to be intelligent and that we need to shape these things. You know, we, we play an absolutely essential role in society. People come to us when their lives are on the line. I realize a lot of it's not at that level, but many days it is. And that's where you really see it, you see. And when you come into this profession, that's what you're agreeing to do. Uh, and it's a noble calling, an extremely noble calling. Well, of the mind, it's to figure out how that really ought to work and make it work that way, right? And of the heart, as we interact not just with our patients, absolutely essential, but with each other, um, to build those teams to move that forward, to see the idea. Do you understand what you signed up for when you entered this profession? I, I think it was, 
I think uh, I'm only starting to realize that. <laughs> That's what happened to all of us, by the way. None of us quite got up when we first, first showed up. Well, I, I definitely the day will was, come uh, when you'll look back on this, Peter. The day will come, and you'll look down it as one of the greatest blessings in your life. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel the privilege of being in medical school, and it was only until I think I got into medical school that I had that realization. I think before that, it was kind of like a goal, and now it feels more of like a privilege. Well, here's the trick, you know, privilege in modern society. That's kind of a negative connotation. We mm -hmm. accuse people of being privileged, and we don't mean it in a nice way, do we? This is a different way of thinking about privilege. When it's a, a position for service, you see, when it's dedicated to bettering the lives of others, then privilege takes on a, a new meaning, doesn't it? And so when we use the term privileged in this setting, it's privileged, what it really means is an obligation, is what it means, you see? So we do feel privileged, but with that privilege, there's a weight that settles on your shoulders. Um, it's, a, it's a worthy load. It will require your very best efforts of mind and of heart. But again, I, I honestly can't think of a better way to spend a life. So, you know, we're counting on you guys. Don't disappoint us. We definitely appreciate that. <laughs> And I, I like how you just talked about privilege and blessings there. I like to think about it that way myself, too. I feel like in my life I've been blessed with a lot of different things, but I try to view that as I've been so blessed, so now it's my turn to work to bless others if I can. There you go. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about. In this profession, we have that opportunity to make an influence on other people's lives, and we need to take advantage of that. Oh, by the way, just to wrap things up a little bit, Caleb, um, you asked me to talk about leadership. One of the key things in leadership is to create a, a compelling vision that can change people's hearts. All right. And so what we've been doing is building that sort of a vision. It's a key aspect of leadership. It's funny. What I've come to believe is when you set that vision, you don't create it. It already exists. I didn't create that in you. You already had it. Uh, I can sometimes breathe the front flame alive. I can cause it to burst forth a little bit better. I can form it. I can structure it a little bit. I can put a name to it, right? But it needs to be compelling. And that's one of the key things that leaders do um, is to create that vision. It's true even if you're just running a team in a surgical suite, good leaders are very clear about what the aims are and why they're important. And you share that. Um, you set a standard, by the way. I'll warn you in advance. Oh, they're rare. You're going to occasionally encounter individuals who, how, how to say it, everybody makes mistakes in the mind. You, you, you have to be trying things. It's failed towards success. And if you're not, it means you're not trying. It means you're a slackered. Throw them out. <laughs> um, we tolerate those. In fact, we encourage them. Now, don't make the same mistake twice. You should learn as you go. Um, but those are good. Uh, it's mistakes of the heart. And occasionally, you'll find someone who really doesn't belong in the profession. Uh, be very careful about that. Think about it well. But when you find someone like that, part of your role as a leader is to find something else for them to do. Mm -hmm. 
don't allow them con- to continue in our profession, regardless of their their position, right? Don't allow them to continue. Take them out. Um, I, I'll admit that, oh, when I was doing it, 95% of my time, maybe even 98, was around causing new and better things to happen. But 2%, 3% was, you'll bump into them and you recognize them. And when you do, don't fail to act. Don't chicken out. Now do it wisely, but don't chicken out. Mm. All right. That, that's part of the obligation too. Keep I think the that, profession clean. I think that's very powerful. And that's, that's one thing that we can do as medical students moving forward is if we see something to be vocal about it. We wanted yeah. to finish the conversation today with just that. You've mentioned you're passing the baton to us in a way to try to improve you know, healthcare in the future. What are some things that you think medical students can do right now to be a part of that? What are some of the big things that we can do moving forwards in our training? So a couple of things, you know, you're drinking from the fire hose right now. There's a massive amount of, of well-structured knowledge that you have to master and internalize. Without it, you can't function. Well, do it well. You know, that's your primary task right now. I hope at the same time you'll have that broader vision and you'll never lose it for where we could be, where we ought to be, in some sense, develop a strong sense of the path to get there. As you're doing it, yeah, hone your, your technical skills, of course, but also take the time. You might have to do it a little bit outside of your standard curriculum. Hone those leadership skills. They're the same skills that will help you in your patient interactions. They'll overlap fairly heavily. But uh, you'll have to do that pretty much on your own at the present moment. But go read, you know, Shanna Felton Swenson. Um, go interact with those people. Think about it. Ruminate on it consider it. And then um, just as you're developing great hands, at the same time, develop great heart, those interactive skills, you see. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. James. I wanted to really thank you for having taken the time to have this conversation with us. I learned so much. Your insights were quite incredible and impactful for me. And I hope that our listeners, and I hope Caleb too, feels the same way. We like to end our interviews with a very consistent question as Caleb and I both said we both like to read and we feel like reading is a way to learn other people's perspectives so um, what have been your top three most influential books for you well I'm going to change that a bit well <laughs> oh my yeah you don't have to give three that's, if that's okay question. but you can give you can give one or two guys yeah just a couple I read a lot too and I've got over a thousand volumes in my library <laughs> Oh my, uh, go read some hate. Um, the Righteous Mind, and what was his book that came before The Righteous Mind? It has to do with self understanding. I really like Janice uh, on Groupthink. You know, you've hit on the key thing, though, Peter. Uh, you ought to be hammering out a book a week outside of your study. Well, maybe I'll, I'll let you off the hook while you're in, in medical school and residency. But even when you're in practice, don't never stop learning. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. So thank you so much again. We really appreciated your time. Oh, the, the book to you for you guys to read right now, uh, Swenson and Shanafel. All right. All right. Leadership. That's that's the book to read.
Sounds good. We'll get right on check, that. Check, check your <laughs> okay. email for my book report. <laughs> Thanks, gentlemen. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Best wishes for a wonderful, wonderful career in the finest profession that the world's ever seen. Love to hear it. That's awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading the Rounds. We hope you learned something new or got a thought you can reflect on to further your own leadership development. If you like our content, please subscribe and follow. We work to put out a new episode every other week. You can also connect with us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Leading the Rounds, or email us at leadingtherounds at gmail.com. See you next time on Leading the Rounds.